I'm going to start tonight with a uh, trivia question. It might be helpful for those of you to pull out in some Christian gathering of some kind. There are two books in our Bible that never once mentioned the name of God. Two books in the Bible that never once mentioned the name of God. Can anyone name those two books? One of them is Esther. The other one is Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Now, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? That we should have books in our Bible, which is a letter from God to mankind, revealing whom? Revealing God. That God should not be mentioned in the book at all. In fact, in this book in Esther, not only is God not mentioned, there is no mention of even some of the basic devotional things we would, we would expect to see from God's people. Prayer is not, once men, is not once mentioned in the book of Esther. Now, you can interpret that prayer was being made when fasting was being done. That's what happened. But it's as if the author of of Esther is intentionally making pains to conceal not only the name of God, but frankly, the worship of God. That should be something that we should immediately begin scratching our heads about. Some Christian writers have just taken this and effectively ignored the book altogether. I read as I was studying that John Calvin and Martin Luther simply just refused to write commentaries on the book of Esther. It was even said that Luther was apparently said that he just wished Esther really hadn't been included in the Bible. I don't know how spiritual in outlook that is, but whatever your approach um, to this book, we should recognize an oddity. Not only that, we should recognize, if we're being serious students of God's word, the moral ambiguity of much of the book. These heroes of the book of Esther, in many ways, do not act like heroes. We'll see tonight that in many ways, the heroes of the book of Esther are compromisers. They are not the holy people living in exile like a Daniel, like Joseph in the Old Testament. We see great moral compromise that marks the life of Esther and that in even some ways marks the life of Mordecai. These, in some ways, I would never want my daughter to grow up in some ways like Esther. Now, why is it then? How do we deal with this story that has God, if you will, seemingly intentionally airbrushed out, at least in name, that has heroes that make us scratch our heads? Why did you do that? Why were you okay with that? But really, when we wrestle with this story of the book of Esther, we see, ultimately, that while the name of God is not there, the presence and the power and the authority of God unambiguously is there. They can't be missed. And ultimately, on this Independence Day weekend, What I want to suggest to to us tonight is that just as we see the divine hand, even if not the divine name, all over the book of Esther, in our own exile, as strangers and pilgrims 
in a country called the United States of America in which moral evil flourishes and even those heroes sometimes that we hold up contain great moral ambiguity, if not compromise, we ourselves can rest and trust in the one whose divine hand has been moving and shaping and directing over the course of this country and who we can be assured will continue to be directing in the years that follow. The message tonight is titled, The Divine Hand. The Divine Hand. A divine name is nowhere to be seen in Esther, but the divine hand cannot be missed. Now, I want to break this into three parts. And really what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be taking a 50,000-foot view of Esther, the entire book. I just want to summarize some of the big pictures and the big themes that come out from Esther so ultimately we can see this big divine hand that is at work. And the first part that I want to focus on tonight is what I'm simply going to call moral evil. Because you cannot read the book of Esther without seeing the presence, and indeed in many chapters, the prevalence of great moral evil. Now, where are we? Let's stop back, just step back for just a little bit of context. The book of Esther recounts events in human history that are right around 480 B.C., so about 480 years before the time of Christ, in the Persian Empire. And actually, we know this because we know when Ahasuerus reigned. What was the name that Ahasuerus was more commonly known in history, his Greek name? Xerxes. Xerxes. We actually have abundant historical evidence of Xerxes. We know when he came to the throne. We know when he was assassinated. And his son, Artaxerxes, came to the throne. So we are able to piece together the historical context of this quite actually easily. It was right around 480 BC. Now, just so you know where this fell into the Judaist, the, the, the history of the Jews and the Jewish history. Zerubbabel, you remember the edict that went out from Cyrus that the people of God would return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? If you would just be able to peg around that around 540 BC, so about 60 years before this, maybe 55 years before this, the first tranche of Jews had gone back. And you can read about that in the early chapters of which book? Book of Ezra. So Zerubbabel leaves a tranche, leads a tranche of Jews back to the homeland after the 70 years of captivity. And the temple, you remember, begins to be built. Well, then you remember the second half of Ezra deals with a second group of Jews. These were, these were the ones that Ezra um, was uh, bringing back. Now, this tranche happened about 25 years after Esther. So if you think that Zerubbabel goes back in around 539 or so B.C., Esther appears on the scene at about 480 or so B.C., give or take a few years, and then Ezra is leading back a group of Jews around maybe 450, 455, something around those lines, and then Nehemiah, which is the next of the historical books, is going back around 445 or so 
B.C. So Esther is between Zerubbabel. She's kind of falling in the middle of the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. All under the Persian Empire. Now where did Daniel fit into this? Daniel fit into the captivity before. Before Cyrus. Before this reign. So just get that chronology in your mind. That timeline for when all of this worked out. Now it's interesting to note just one thing. Esther's family did not go back to, to, to the land of Israel. They did not go back to the promised land. And in fact, many Jews did not. Why not? Well, at least a couple of things have been suggested. Once, one is simply that many got comfortable in the Persian Empire. Their exile, their place of exile, became their home. Perhaps they got wealth. They got influence. They got prestige. Or simply, it was just entropy. Things in motion tend to stay in motion against, unless they're met by an outside force. And so these people just kept on living there. Others may have been fearful. The, the journey back to Israel was dangerous. There were robbers. There were thieves along the way. They might have said, you know what? It's not worth it. It's better just to stay here. But whatever it is, notice, Esther is in a land of exile when her family, the Jews, had the opportunity to go back to the promised land, the place where God said he would again root them there. But let's start, first of all, by looking at this moral evil. And the moral evil starts with this guy named Ahasuerus, Xerxes. You know, the, the book of Esther doesn't paint a very nice picture of Ahasuerus, does it? A man who was all about two things, Men are known for their wealth and their power, and women are valuable for their beauty. That was, what, that was what Ahasuerus was all about. How do we know this? Well, we know from chapter 1 what he did. He threw a party. And it wasn't just any party. It was a party to show off how wealthy he was. And this party, we see that this, this large celebration was ultimately over a period of 180 days, a six-month bash to show off how wealthy he was because to the king of that day, the Persian Empire, it was all about his wealth. And clearly, what was the other thing he was motivated by? His lust. We see this in his wife, Queen Vashti. When he gets drunken during this seven-day feast with the men of his kingdom, and he, uh, in his drunken stupor, says, hey, Vashti, come and show off what a beautiful wife I have. And Vashti, who is probably the fair favorite character of feminists in the Bible, says, no, I'm just seeing a library book in our local library. She said no. Whatever it was, I can just imagine um, the favorite picture here, right? She just says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, this was, frankly, remarkably courageous, maybe stubborn, I don't know what exactly motivated other than she says, no, I'm not going to come parade in front of you. And what happened? Of course, in his anger, Ahasuerus gets very angry. He's been shown up, he's been disrespected, and they come up with a divine decree that she needs to be divorced. The, the picture of Ahasuerus is not a very kind one, though I did notice um, I, I heard a pastor speaking of this, and he says, I'm, I'm glad, you know, this world where a man is known by his wealth and his status and a woman is known by her beauty. He says, isn't it wonderful that we've moved beyond that? Um, that was a joke. Uh, 
we, we haven't. And that, frankly, is the, uh, the, the basis of so much of fleshliness in our world today, trying to buy into a worldly standard of what success looks like and a worldly standard of what attainment looks like. There was moral evil. Not only that, you go then into to Esther chapter 2 and you see another form of great moral evil. I, I don't want to be in any way um, inappropriate or in any way uh, to be suggestive, overly suggestive, but you can't read through Esther 2 without, without seeing this wasn't just a beauty contest. A beauty contest is not gathering together hundreds of women and having each one of them go in. In the evening, she goes in. In the morning, she goes out. And then she goes to the house of the concubines. She went in in one form, a virgin, and she went out not. This was an evening with the king. It was satisfying his lustful desires. That was what it is. And so this um, very story of Ahasuerus um, is, is so indicative of his debased lustful approach to life and to women. He was an extremely lustful man. Not only that, even Xerxes is his tolerance of genocide. You remember when Haman comes into him in in Esther chapter 3 and says, you know, we got this people. They're just not the right kind of people for you. They don't even follow your laws. Let's just wipe them out. And do you notice how quickly Ahasuerus says, sure, here's my ring, good luck. Really? What a remarkable man, what a remarkable character. He says, the silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Moral evil is all over the character of Ahasuerus. But then even more so, moral evil is all over the character of Haman. He becomes a kind of archetype of evil. He becomes, in fact, a picture, I think, of Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren, the one always out to destroy God's people. Have you noticed, did you think about the fact that he is identified as Haman the Agagite? Does anyone remember where the word Agag, the name we heard Agag before in the Bible? He was a king. A king that Samuel slew, he killed, he hewed up in pieces. God had war against which people? Agag was the king of the... Come on, folks, this is Bible trivia time. The Amalekites... And God said, I will have war against Amalek forever. They were the sworn enemy of his people. And now here, Haman in Agagite, likely in Amalekite from long before, stands up as the archetype of evil, the one who is standing against God and his people. So notice we cannot get away from the intensity of moral evil and of this overwhelming cultural and worldly sensuality, fleshliness, and sin. But that's when the characters start to get really challenging for us. Because not only do we see moral evil, but the second point we'll look at tonight is spiritual compromise. The heroes of the book of Esther for the, mo- for, the, for the first part of the book of Esther don't look like heroes. They look like compromisers. Think about Esther. 
Now, again, I'm sorry. I maybe should have given a trigger warning. If you've had a, a great vis- this picture of this morally pure, saintly Esther, maybe I should have told you, warned you tonight. Just beware. I remember when I told my wife there was a, um, the, uh, the, the, a president's wife that was in the past who she just thought was this paragon of virtue and excellence. I said, you know, she is a smoker. And oh man, it just absolutely, it just, oh, I can't even, I can't even think of this woman I've looked up to. She's a smoker. Oh no. Um, whatever it is. Uh, frankly, we just, we just have to grapple with, with who Esther was. The first thing to notice in chapter two was her secret. What was her secret? What was Esther's secret? She did not do what? She did not reveal her people. She did not reveal that she was a Jew. And in fact, Mordecai was complicit in this because Mordecai told her not to. You say, why does that matter? Not a big deal to go incognito. Really? What did that mean that she wasn't doing if she was not showing that she was a Jew? It meant for sure one thing. She wasn't following Old Testament dietary laws that were commanded on the Jewish people. In my view, it makes it likely that she was not following Sabbath laws because that was something that, of course, was a special covenant relationship of God to his people. She was under cover. Now, this alone, you say, well, maybe this was wise. Maybe this was the thing that helped her to become queen. Maybe. But I think we all have been taught in this church well that the ends never justify the means. That it is never right to do wrong to do right. In fact, compare this to Daniel. The other picture of what it is to live a moral and holy life in exile. Remember him in a similar situation going in where he's surrounded by the court at Babylon, also in captivity, and he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He was an out-and-out follower of Jehovah. He was an open Jew seeking to follow all the commandments of God and win the request of the king, when the request of his uh, school, his university at Babylon occurred, Daniel said, no, I'm not going along. Please, I don't want to eat the meat. I don't want to drink the wine. I'll take that. So we should just wrestle with that for a little bit. There's a picture here, it seems to me, of clear moral compromise. Well, it gets worse. When we recognize that Esther was going into a beauty contest that was not a beauty contest. And sometimes we have this idea of this, 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 this picture of Esther. I was reading a, a Bible that had a kind of a commentary. It was an application study Bible. And they said of Esther that she was selected by the, queen, by the king to be the queen for her beauty and her character. Well, friends, you can read Esther chapter 2 and there's no mention of her character, really. Character seems to have had very little to do with it. It seems to have simply been a king who fell head over heels for her beauty and for his fleshly satisfaction at her hands. Again, I'm not trying to be in any way inappropriate. I'm simply saying you cannot read Esther chapter 2 and see that Esther was a participant in something that was wrong. Not only was it immoral, not only was it fornication, it was also her willingness to go into the king's harem What would have happened if Esther had not been selected? She would have gone into the house of the concubines. She would have been a part of the harem. By the way, this was a very tragic end for women. You're an 18-year-old. 
You go in for an evening with the king. You come out. He doesn't select you. Guess what? He may never call on you again, and you can never be married to another man. You are to be isolated from any relationship with a man. You are part of his harem forever. It was cruel. It was wicked. It was evil. It was abominable in the sight of God, who made them at the beginning to be one man and one wife for life. This is moral evil, and it is spiritual compromise. Now, you may say, well, maybe you're being too harsh because maybe she didn't have a choice. And it's possible that Esther did not have a choice in this. It said that she was brought in to the king's house. So we should at least recognize there may not have been a real choice. But again, I go back to a man like Daniel, who, whether he had a choice or not, said, I'm going to walk the way that God calls me to walk, whatever that means for my life. So again, do we have to be inordinately harsh on Esther? Do we have to be relentlessly cruel or do we have to be um, uh, in this way criticizing her above all things? No, but we do need to be honest and we, need to do, we do need to recognize the challenge. By the way, one other thing. Do you remember in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah what one of the great sins that those holy men of God were concerned about? Pagan intermarriage. You remember Ezra confronting the people about intermarrying with pagans. You remember Nehemiah confronting the people about intermarriage. You remember God's commands in the Old Testament. Never, never be married to someone who is not a follower of Jehovah. And then we see Esther coming in to marry, to marry a pagan man, not a follower of Jehovah Man given to his own lusts and to his own fleshly desires. There's other things in Esther, I think, that we should just recognize as being at least morally ambiguous. We should recognize Mordecai refusing to show honor or respect to Haman. It's at least ambiguous to me. Is that consistent with what we see in the New Testament? Commanded, give honor to whom honor is due. Honor the king. Submit to those who have authority. That is at least ambiguous. We get on later in the book and we see the Jews across the entire Persian Empire killing 75,000 people. 75,000. Did that go beyond the principles of self-defense for which it had been provided and instead go to vengeance and to a kind of war that was not consistent with biblical versions of morality? Again, at least these are ambiguities. But the point is simply this. You had people in exile who chose not to go back to the land of Israel. They were comfortable in their exile. And you have in their decisions that they're making, at a minimum, evidence of spiritual compromise, of buying in, if you will, to the idea of, of, of beauty and what it means, of, of importance and status. Proverbs 31, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with a, a, a picture of Esther that is perhaps a little bit more shadowed than we've been accustomed to thinking about her? A picture of Mordecai, even, that is a little bit more shadowed of a man in exile. I want to see not just, firstly, moral evil, not just, secondly, spiritual compromise, but thirdly, we need to see divine authority. 
because this is the absolute glory of the book of Esther, a book in which God is not named, and yet God's fingerprints are all over the entire story. A story in which the writer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has cloaked the name of Jehovah from this book, and yet is clearly writing in such a way so that everyone sees God was the one behind this story. Notice, first of all, God's authority over moral evil and spiritual compromise. How did this story work out? His story worked out because Esther was queen. How did Esther become queen? Because Ahasuerus got drunk and ordered his wife to come and show off in front of his male colleagues. Now, do we, th- do we think that God's work was being accomplished when that wicked king was drinking himself drunk? That's an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Oh, what, what was happening when Xerxes was drinking himself drunk? Was God authoring his moral evil? No, he was not. Was he in any event working through it and overruling it to bring about his purposes? Yes, he was. When Queen Esther went into, uh, in to see the king and was ultimately selected as queen, a place of moral evil and spiritual compromise, was God overruling and working things together for the good of his people despite the moral compromise? Yes, he was. He was. Was God working through the plans of wicked Haman to set up a circumstance in which his authority and his sovereignty would be recognized above all? Yes, he was. We see the same kind of example in our New Testaments when we think about Jesus going to the cross. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is boldly proclaiming against the people of Jerusalem what they've just done to Jesus, he brings these two things together. He brings God's authority and man's agency, man's human responsibility. Listen to what he says when he describes the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why was he crucified? Because of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's God's authority. That's God's sovereignty. But notice what he goes on to say. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why was he crucified? Because men had wicked hands and they were given to violence. You see, both those two things go together. God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge and man's wickedness, moral evil, depravity, and fleshliness bringing out in severe sin. It's the same thing. And so here we see moral evil and spiritual compromise nonetheless being overruled by a God whose divine hand was working through all of it. Now, this means a couple of things, I think, for us as citizens in the United States of America. One thing it means is this. We should be very cautious at whitewashing the stories of our heroes. We should just recognize in every circumstance, it is a human trait to whitewash their heroes and, if you will, put the darkest construction 
on their adversaries, on their enemies. We have a human trait to make, want to make everything simple, to make everything clean and neat and tidy. And the stories we tell, even of our history as a country, frankly, the stories we tell of our favorite politicians, of our favorite leaders, we can just whitewash and pretend that there's no moral evil, no spiritual compromise, no shadow, nothing. It's, it's all pure. It's all pristine. And frankly, it just isn't true. It isn't true. The stories of our history as a country are very complex and in some cases filled with great moral evil. In some cases, they are full of all kinds of spiritual compromise. And we should be honest. In the same way we should be honest with ourselves about Mordecai and about Esther and about the challenges we are confronted with in their own experience. But you know what? There's something, secondly, that's, I think, even more wonderful and greater. It's this. In all the moral evil that we see in our history and even in today, we serve a God who's greater than all of it. The lesson of Esther is you never need to fear moral evil. You never even need ultimately to fear spiritual compromise by God's people because above all of it and through all of it is a God who is able to work through the worst moral evil and the greatest form of spiritual compromise to work his redemptive plan for his people's good. You know, it's such a tempting thing when we see the latest thing coming out of Washington, the latest story of what they're trying to put in our school districts, the latest story of the things they're trying to push that are leading people away from the truth of God's word, who are causing people to, to give in themselves to moral evil and turn to fear, turn to anxiety, say we can't possibly stand up against this flood of moral evil that's taking over our country. And the real truth is, it's not about you standing up against it in the end. It's about a God whose divine authority, whose divine hand is able to and is working all things together for good for his people. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Be standing on the truth of who God is and his authority, even over moral evil and spiritual compromise. There's another aspect. Not only is God authoritative, not only is his sovereignty over moral evil and spiritual compromise, notice also it's his authority over what appears to be coincidence. We won't go through all of them tonight, just simply for time's sake, but I wonder if you'll sit down and read through the book of Esther and just try to, just try to underline in your Bibles or make a note of every coincidence that happens. The coincidence is like Mordecai just so happens to hear about a plot against the king's life and takes it to the king. The coincidence that Esther invites Haman and the king to his banquet and for whatever reason she says, I'm not going to expose him here. I'm going to wait for one more banquet. Why did she do that? I have no idea. She had, hey, come to a banquet. All right, Esther, what do you want? Come to another banquet. I don't get it, but God does. There's no coincidence. 
It was no coincidence that she delayed that for another banquet. And it was no coincidence that Haman walked out and was so angry about Mordecai not bowing to him that he went and built gallows for him. It was no coincidence that he was so angry about it that he got up early in the morning to go to the king. It was no coincidence that just it so happened that that night the king couldn't sleep. It wasn't a coincidence that he asked for the book of the records to be brought. It wasn't a coincidence that they just happened to light on the one that Mordecai had never been rewarded. For. It was no coincidence that Haman had just happened to walk into the court. It was no coincidence, any of it, because we serve a God who works through what appear to be the most random of coincidences to form and bring about his purposes. You know, we can even see this, friends, in what we have been rejoicing in recently with the Supreme Court ruling, overruling what has been the, one of the great symbols of moral evil in our entire country, Roe versus Wade. If you simply were to track the coincidences going back over the last 50 years that led to the moment when this moral evil, at least in a legal sense, would be wiped from our jurisprudence, you would see coincidence after coincidence after coincidence after coincidence that you couldn't turn your head from. In fact, you would even see examples of moral evil that came along the way. Politicians that had their own spiritual compromise, that had their own moral evil, but was working toward this end. And I simply say that to say, whatever your fear and anxiety is, recognize that you worship a God, you serve a God who works through coincidences that seem entirely random to bring about his purposes. But there's one more. Not only is it God's authority over moral evil and spiritual compromise, not only that it is God's authority over coincidence, but there's one more. It's God's authority over transformed character. You know, the end, the end of the story for Esther and for Mordecai is not nearly as bleak as it looks like in Esther 1 and Esther 2. Because ultimately we get to what we saw in, in, in Esther chapter 4. Listen to what Esther says in Verse, let, let's start with what Mordecai says in verse 13. He says, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? At one point, Mordecai said to Esther, Just stay undercover. It'll be better this way. What seems to me an evidence of spiritual compromise. Now, at this central point, Mordecai stands forward and said, God's going to deliver his people some way. It might as well be through your courage. Look at what Esther says. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. What is this an example of? Wonderful moral courage. Ultimately, an example of a woman, whatever her past, at a time when she needed to stand up for righteousness, when she needed to stand up to oppose moral evil, even choosing civil disobedience. That's exactly what she did. And ultimately, I leave you with this. We also, like Esther and like Mordecai, are exiles. We're strangers in this country. No matter if we have a position of high political prestige or not, we're strangers. 
And there's moral evil and there's spiritual compromise that's going on all around us. And we should call it for what it is. We shouldn't whitewash it. We shouldn't pretend that we hide it because it's on our side of the political aisle. No, we are uncompromising in holding and standing on righteousness. But ultimately, our trust in a sovereign God, a divinely authoritative God who is working through all coincidences and working around all kinds of moral evil and spiritual compromise does not cause us to step back, to sit down and say, okay, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to stand for anything. I don't need to pursue righteousness and oppose evil. The lesson ultimately of Mordecai the lesson ultimately of Esther is that you are called to stand in courage. That you are called to stand for righteousness and against evil no matter the cost. Knowing that just as God works through moral evil and spiritual compromise to accomplish his purposes, he works through your courage and he works through mine when it is for the positions that he has called us to and to stand for his people. That's the story of Esther, in my view. It's complicated. There are some shadows and some ambiguities around it. But ultimately, it's a story of great hope for those of us who look back to the 240 plus years that God has given us in this country and to how many other years, other years he has for us in the future. There's one more thing. Esther tells us of the origins of the Jewish feast of Purim. Does anyone know what that word Purim means? What it comes from, Pur? It is what? The lot. Why is Purim called the lot? Because Haman took lot a lot. It was like rolling dice. It was a system of chance. And you see in Esther chapter 3 that Haman rolled the dice and it was to determine when the Jews would be destroyed. And in fact, that date, the lot, the random coincidence was that that lot went out something like 11 months from the time when he rolled it. And it was as if the Jews were taking that example, Purim, of the lot, the randomness of chance, the coincidences of life, and applying it, assigning it to the name of their feast when God worked through the seemingly random coincidences of the lot to accomplish his purposes of deliverance for his people. May I encourage you as we go from here tonight, don't give in to fear, don't give in to anxiety, don't compromise your spiritual principles to get along, don't compromise what is righteous, don't give in to what is evil, simply stand in trust of the divine hand who is working even today and stand as needed in places of courage and conviction and trust our God to bring about his good purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this divine hand that we see all throughout this book, a book with complexity, a book with challenges, a book with moral evil and apparent spiritual compromise, and yet ultimately a a book in which the divine hand, your hand, is so clear. Thank you for Esther. Thank you for Mordecai. Thank you for their courage. Thank you for their conviction in the final chapter. And I pray, Father, that we would walk 
in that same example, whatever place you have called us to, may we stand courageously to do what is right in that very place.